it is essential for our survival to use these powerful tools in the most humane and wise way. And the only way to guarantee that is not to shuffle the responsibility off to somebody else, but to make sure that every citizen understands science and technology to some extent. Lighten up, Francis. And Miss Mahatra, can you hear? Still hear me? Yes, I can. No. Okay, I'm, I made the connection again. Uh, I apologize. I know that uh, you've gone out of your way to take some time to speak with me today from a radio show on Collision Course. Uh, thank you so much. I've uh, taken the last few weeks, couple of weeks, especially the last seven days, to um, really try to get to know you and the things that you are so deeply involved in, uh, specifically the far-flung objects in our outer solar system, specifically the supposed planets that are out there, according to the signals, um, that are yet to be discovered. I know also that you've been involved in planetary discoveries and exoplanets for a very, very long time in your research career as well. But most of this is really about the signals that are given to astronomers through their observations of the Kuiper Belt objects. Can you tell us a little bit about development of the theories of how we organized those orbits of Kuiper Belt objects to produce a theory that there is a planet farther out than Neptune? Um, yes, I'd be happy to briefly tell you about that. Uh, this idea has actually go back quite a long ways. I'd say at least uh, something like 20, almost 20 years in the early 2000s. Uh, as more and more Kuiper Belt objects were being discovered, one of the things uh, that was becoming clear was uh, that there seems to be a pretty sharp edge, outer edge, of uh, the objects that are on more circular orbits and more coplanar with the planet. Uh, and that, uh, that sharp edge uh, made many people think that uh, there, might, there needs to be a reason for why there is this sharp edge. And one of the ideas that was proposed was uh, there might be either uh, um, a planet out there uh, just beyond this sharp edge that was maintaining or shepherding this sharp edge. Or there was a planet long ago that had done this and has since been gone. Uh, more recently, uh, the additional information we have now is not only about the sharp edge, but um, more uh, objects that are more distant, but which are not on circular orbits and they're not coplanar with the planets. So they look like uh, a population of scattered objects, like they've had a slingshot uh, scattering encounters with uh, with Neptune and with the other planets and potentially uh, other unseen planets. One of the peculiarities about these scattered objects, the most distant of these, uh, look like uh, their orbits. So their orbits are very, very elliptical, and uh, their orbit planes are quite widely dispersed. Um, but their orientations, the way their uh, skinny, long ellipses are uh, oriented, uh, appear to be clustered. They're not random. And that has led to this idea that there is a farther farther out planet that's um, uh, shepherding these objects 
into these clustered uh, orientations of their orbits. Right. Um, if I can explain a little bit to my listeners, uh, what we're talking about in, in distances is probably important just to mention. Um, of course, uh, for us uh, on Earth here, we have a one astronomical unit, the distance between Earth and to the sun. Uh, Neptune is out uh, in the 20s and 30s. We're talking 30s. about objects that are... Mm-hmm. yes. And now we're talking about Kuiper Belt objects that are going out, reaching out into the 50s to the 80s. And then these far, far flung objects that you were talking about would be almost out into the hundreds of AUs. And it was when you were getting out to that distance that you were finding the most, you know, the most eccentric orbits. And um, that kind well, of. Well, let me, yes, let's, uh, let's be a little clear. So these, these distances that you mentioned. Uh, we can think of these as the average orbital distances. The objects that we actually see are closer in because they are at their inner, their closest approach to the sun. When we actually see them, they're the brightest at that time. And so the distances at which we are actually observing these objects are more like in the 50s to maybe 50 to 100 astronomical units. But they're, uh, but we can tell the shapes of their orbits just by watching them for even a few years. And the shapes of their orbits um, are clearly such that uh, their average orbital distance is in the hundreds of astronomical units. Right. And some of their orbits were hard to explain because a lot of the orbits out in those distances between 100 and then back toward Neptune, Neptune and its, process, its procession in its orbit kind of drags some of those objects along and causes some of these variations in the distance right after Neptune. But then when you get a little bit farther, there's a break and you have an increase in eccentricities that is not necessarily um, described as a result of the interaction with Neptune in its processing orbit. That's exactly right. So Neptune's gravitational influence and its uh, any kind of shepherding effects it might do, they peter out uh, after about 50 astronomical units. And uh, so beyond that, we don't expect Neptune to have a have a super great influence in uh, at least in some some of these properties of shepherding. It can do other things, uh, but not so much in uh, shepherding these uh, very large orbits. But um, what? But we, but what we, but what we will or might find between the two objects is the next important aspect is the renaissance, the renaissance amongst objects in those regions, because and basically for the listeners again, a renaissance, uh, renaissance. I don't know if I'm saying resonance. Thank you, thank you very much. A resonance between two objects is let's say. Earth goes around in one year, um, and then another object takes a year and a half to go around the sun. They end up having a resonance. They have a resonant number that's created. Right. And what, what you're doing is you're taking that resonant feature and you're bringing it to the furthest reaches, reaches of the solar system. And in that, you can create these resonant features amongst objects and while at the same time you may be creating a resonant feature that doesn't tie into a known object, right? So that's, that's where right, resonant. Yeah. 
resonant processes yes, can right. they can find yeah. they, they can they can tell you about an object that you know about mm-hmm. but if you end up with a resonant feature that points to an object that's not available you that may lead you to find that object because uh, let that's me tell it. you i don't yeah. know if i mm-hmm. if i preface too much i am i'm i am one uh, i'm a transient fan i love transient objects i i, I if there's any some some astronomers uh, um, my circle of friends they love astrophotography they some of my friends they love the equipment and for mm-hmm. myself it's all about the it's about the hunt i'm i'm constantly mm-hmm. on the hunt and oh, and sure. why i found your information so interesting and and potentially valuable for those of us who are on the hunt is that we need to find the techniques on how to discover where and where where something is that hasn't been discovered yet right sure sure yes yeah so what i can say is uh, let me let me try to explain this uh, a little bit so uh for example we have this uh, resonance between uh, pluto and neptune so pluto goes around the sun in the same time as uh, neptune goes around so pluto goes around the sun once while neptune goes around one and a half times Okay, so every, or another way to put that is, for every three times that Neptune goes around the sun, Pluto goes around twice. So there's this uh, three halves ratio of their orbital periods around the sun. And it's and, a, low, uh, it it's a does, low ratio. It's a low, it's a small integer ratio, right? The integers okay. are small, two and three. Okay. Uh, but why it's valuable is, um, or what we can say, it, it actually tells us something about the location of Pluto in its orbit and the location of Neptune in its orbit, if we only if we only knew about one of them, so if we know where Neptune is today, we can guess where uh, Pluto would be when it reaches perihelion. Uh, there are, there's a small range of angles where Pluto reaches perihelion relative to where Neptune is. And so uh, in the sky, you could locate um, Either one of these objects, knowing where the other one is, you'd have right. a you'd have a good guess as to where the other one is if you knew where one of them was. For the listeners, it's it's kind of like if you know where one is, you know where one definitely is not. And so That's when you right. know where yeah. when you know where one is definitely not, then you can start searching in that segment of the sky, and you can have a better basis of where to begin. Because, of course, the sky is a, a large place, so some of these resonant uh, features will allow astronomers to take a chunk of the sky and eliminate that as the possibility of where this unseen, undiscovered object is, and they can begin to look. And that's some of the things that I'm interested in learning about and staying on top of, and because it's going to help lead the discovery. I, I want to ask you one question, because... This week, while I was doing the last of my research, I actually discovered something that I did not know about because I was so, I guess, Planet Nine was so much in the forefront. Now, I want to be sure that I heard this correctly. In one of your talks, not only spoke of Planet Nine, but then you spoke of Planet X, Planet Ten. Right. Are those are those two separate entities? Are they two entities in the same process, or is it Planet X can cause all of this and Planet Nine can mm-hmm. cause all of this, or you need both of them together or neither of them? 
Well, at the moment, the evidence is still a little bit blurry, I would say. So in mm-hmm. principle, it's possible that one object might be uh, responsible for all the, you know, for the separate signals that we are, that we are seeing. But it's also possible that they, that there are two separate objects. And at the moment, it actually looks more likely that it's two separate objects. See, that's, ex- uh, that's the intriguing. Second, uh, yeah, so the second line of evidence, what, what you probably heard was when I mentioned a planet 10, which, by the way, is not my name. It's a name that uh, I think some somebody in the press gave it that name. I think the planet X, it's not even when you say planet 10, that's bad. it's when you start saying planet X. It's the planet X that has the, the bad connotations around it. <laughs> Uh, people okay. pe- people put bad bad ideas in other people's heads when you say planet X, but planet ten is really okay. Okay, so planet ten, the hypothetical planet ten, uh, the signal for that is actually very curious, uh, and it's something that I think is easily understood. So we know that the solar system planets uh, all share approximately the same orbit orbit plane. Okay, they all orbit in approximately the same plane, so the solar system is quite flat. The planets uh, lie in this very, very, fairly flat situation. Uh, so we expect that uh, all the small bodies, the asteroids and Kuiper Belt objects, uh, even though they have quite a wide dispersion of their orbital planes, the their average plane should be very close to the plane of the planets because the planets are controlling uh, how the uh, how the orbits precess, how the orbits of the small bodies asteroids and Kuiper Belt objects, how they precess. And when you have a large collection of small bodies, their average plane is very well defined. And it's defined by the planets, by the gravity of the planet. So what we set out to look for was what is the average plane of the Kuiper Belt? And is it where we expect it to be? And uh, we had the surprise that the farther out you go in the Kuiper Belt, the more uh, deviant that average plane is. So the plane is deviating away from what we expect it to be based on the gravity of the planet. And uh, how tilted it is, uh, some some estimate of where and uh, how massive uh, an unknown and unseen planet might be that might explain this, uh, uh, this tilt of the more distant Kuiper Belt objects, the average tilt. I want to be sure it's the average tilt we are talking about not the individual tilts. The individual tilts are actually quite large and dispersed, but the average is a very well-defined quantity and very well-defined expectation based on the planets we know of. So when we find that the average of the small bodies farther out deviates from what we expect, that signals that there must be something else affecting uh, the average plane. Yeah, we made some estimates, and so the estimates... uh, as best as we can tell, are actually not what we expect for Planet 9. Planet 9 is farther out. This warp that we see in the Kuiper Belt is closer in. So we were we are guessing that there's a closer in but smaller planet, a Planet 10. It might only be as small as a Mars mass or somewhere between a Mars and an Earth mass planet, but it's closer in. So that's the distinction with Planet 9. Planet 9 is thought to be hundreds of astronomical units away. This one in order to explain the warp that we see at less than 100 astronomical units, this one we are guessing should be somewhere closer in, around 100, less than 100 astronomical units. Right. I, I, uh, as part of that, as part of what uh, Dr. Mohach was talking about, there is a visual representation of what the, um, the, the 
orbital, uh, well, what the solar system looks like as the orbits uh, move out from the sun, they will reach out a little bit past Neptune and then there'll be a dip. And then the further the objects are, that dip starts to rise in an inclination. So it, it's very interesting. I'm going to share that uh, imagery with our listeners probably uh, during or after the uh, second half of the show. Now, Dr. Mahatma, can we have our guest, Ms. Renu Malhatra, the Lewis Folkar Marshall Science Research Professor, Regents Professor of Planetary Sciences. We've been talking about her work with far-flung uh, objects and planets in the outer solar system. Uh, Dr. Mohatra, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. I thank you very much for your patience. I'm only going to keep you for a couple of minutes longer. I wanted to introduce the listeners to some of the science that you have going on because there is a lot of interest in Planet Nine, yet there seems to be you know, the information regarding how we're going to find it, if we're going to find it, and the science behind hypothesizing about it is sometimes hard for some people to understand. They sometimes can't understand how we can go from mathematical simulations and models to understanding potential for having an object like that um, out in the farthest reach of the solar system. Um, besides, of course, the the mathematics of the uh, earliest astronomers, which dictate that according if we follow their procedure and their recipe, we can continue to find far-reaching planets that have yet to be found if the circumstances and the environment is such. I do, though, want to shift just one little bit because I was also reading a little bit about your work with early bombardment and train of thought about the potential of the migration of Neptune. Now, my reading on the topic is that in the earliest uh, time of our solar system, much of the material that would be available for planetary uh, growth was much closer into our star than where uh, the, our current giant planets currently reside. Um, it's been found on other stars outside of our own where they have exoplanets of uh, gas giants um, orbiting very close to their home star. And so I believe that because of some of that information now coming to light, new theories are being proposed about potential migration of our large giant planets from a place closer into the sun and then therefore moving farther out. And I guess my question would be, if that's something that may have occurred, where then do the rocky planets begin their formation? After the passage and migration of the giant planet or somewhere in between? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, we are still trying to figure that one out. Um, what we see from other planetary systems is that there's a wide variety of uh, planetary architectures is that we, we use this word architecture of a planetary system, meaning the, what are, uh, how is the mass in planets distributed and how far apart are planetary orbits, what are their spacings. So spacings and masses of planets, those are two, uh, two parts of the architecture of a planetary system. And what we are finding is that there's a wide variety of those. Uh, before we found other planetary systems, our theories had us uh, thinking that uh, rocky planets form in the region where we see them in our solar system, roughly somewhere between, somewhere up to 
three astronomical units to the sun. And then beyond three astronomical units, we have the giant gaseous planets. What we are now convinced of is that the giant gassy planets in our solar system uh, probably formed um, somewhat closer in where they are right now uh, in a na- and also in a narrow annulus. So Neptune formed closer in, maybe halfway as close as it is now uh, to the sun. And then um, all the giant planets were all born in a narrow annulus and they spread out. So Neptune is now twice as far away as it was as it probably was when it was born uh, with the rocky planets in our solar system it is uh, it appears that the gas giants may not have invaded the space that the rocky planets formed in and so our rocky planets were okay they were not especially disturbed by the gas giants migration okay, so they had a zone they had a zone that that didn't reach quite out into the reach of the 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 gaseous giants as they were uh, acquiring right. their mass and so during this period is this the period where we talk about the heavy bombardment period um so, right so the heavy bombardment period is after the planets formed we have um, we have uh, all the craters that we see on the on the moon on uh, mars on uh, mercury and uh, we have estimates of uh, how old those ancient craters are and it turns out that the craters on the moon had a there was a cratering spike on the moon long after it formed. So the Earth and Moon are timed, you could say. We know the ages of the Earth and the Moon, and they go back to four and a half billion years, so some 4,500 million years ago. But the craters, there was a cratering spike that we see on the moon, which occurred some 500 million years later, after after Earth and Moon formed. And that's what's called the late heavy bombardment. Right, and... Uh, I- I bring that up because it's it's visually, and I'll probably again I'll bring this up at another time for the listeners, and I'll, I'll present a picture. Is on the surface of the moon, you could show the representation of a portion of the moon that was under a more severe bombardment of objects uh, than other portions of the moon, which have less cratering visible, and then therefore at that same time as the moon is being bombarded, you can must only therefore you know postulate that the earth whatever portion of the earth was at the opposite side or or relevant uh, relative all of the earth all of the earth and all of the moon were intensely bombarded Um, the some parts of the moon were later the craters were wiped out because there was volcanic activity on the moon later on that wiped out those craters so we still have remnants of the ancient bombardment that we can see on the moon, in parts of the moon, but not all of the moon. But that's not to say that the bombardment was localized. The bombardment was everywhere on the moon, as well as on the Earth. Oh, so interesting. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a silly question I'm going to ask you. You you take uh, much enjoyment out of the work that you get to do every day? Totally, yes. Yeah, I mean, There's not and, enough time in the day. And I think you were saying that, uh, mentioning to me that uh, it takes up a whole lot of time. And then I say that, well, I said to myself, well, there's a lot of stuff going on right now, isn't there? There is indeed. We're living in really interesting, awesome times. And in the not so near future, though, uh, we'll we'll have a definitive date soon enough. We 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 will have new telescopes up and running, um, ground based and in space, which 
I believe is going to be the end of end all for a lot of the questions that we maybe have talked about on this show because they're going to these these new optics and the new ability to see out into space and to reach into these uh, areas that we're interested in is going to improve tremendously, correct? Yes, we are going to learn a, lo- a whole lot of new things, I think, about the solar system It's very yeah, and planets. Very, very exciting. I promise that I wouldn't keep you too long. And I know um, between the, the little faux faux at the beginning, uh, I think I've kept you long enough. I appreciate you coming and having a talk with me about the science that you're so, so involved with. And, you know, I can tell that you get a great enjoyment out of it and the collaboration and the teaching of others because it is the reason why I do what I do, and I know that it's a part of the reason why you do what you do, so that you have an opportunity to spread the wealth of knowledge that you have to those who don't have it and who may learn something and be better for it after they've heard the news. So, Dr. Renu Malhatra, this is Francis Walsh. I want to thank you personally for coming on to Collision Course this evening um, and and just thank speaking you. with me thank about these great me. things. Um, I wish you a wonderful rest of your Saturday evening. And if I ever have a question that uh, may pop up, who knows what's going to surprise us around the corner, uh, I'll send you an email and uh, ask you what your opinion is. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye now. Bye-bye. Is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us! They're gonna kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they a government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. When the operation of the machine